Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show. Today on the program, Jerry Springer. He is fascinating, way more so than you even knew. This is a guy who was brought to the United States by his German Jewish parents in 1949 and has an incredible story, uh, incredible life story, incredible story in New York Harbor under Lady Liberty as he arrived here and all the goodness that happened in his life thereafter. You may not know he's a lawyer. He was a mayor. He worked for Bobby Kennedy. He was a very successful news anchor, uh, starred on Broadway, hosted game shows, Dancing with the Stars, America's Got Talent, two CDs, a radio show. He's got a podcast. I mean, I could go on, but the guy has seen incredible success over the course of his life. And I think has a real understanding of what this country is. Uh, We don't line up exactly politically, but who cares, right? Who cares? We got to talk to people who might not be on our exact side of the aisle. And uh, I think he and I exemplify that in this interview, which I know you're going to love. So to Jerry Springer in one sec. But first, the more you do online, like all the gift giving and the banking and the browsing, the more you expose your personal information. That makes you vulnerable to thieves, cyber criminals. They're out there just waiting for you to make a mistake. Now's the time to think about your cybersecurity right now. It genuinely is as the year closes out with all in one protection the all-in-one protection of Norton 360 with LifeLock. This is the easy way to keep your busy digital life safer in one place. You get powerful protection for your devices, your laptops, your, your tablets, your phone. You get a VPN for your online privacy and LifeLock identity theft protection that alerts you to potential identity threats. No one can prevent all cybercrime and identity theft or monitor every transaction at every business, but Norton 360 with LifeLock can help keep your holidays happy with powerful protection against cyber criminals. You can save 25% or more off your first year at norton.com slash MK. That's norton.com slash MK to save 25% off. Do it now. Thanks for having me on. And uh, I mean, for me, it's really exciting talking with you. Well, it sounds like I'm saying, boy, I'm really a big fan, but actually I am. So although our politics may be a little different, but other than that, you're really good. You're really good. Uh, Thank you. I thought I thought that butt was going to go someplace else. Like, but I actually don't like you at all. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I like what you said. I 
almost all my friends are liberals. I'm not a liberal. I'm not really a conservative either. But I, I hate that we've gotten to this place in the country where people are assuming that's impossible now. I agree with that. Uh, I agree. But I think that is just exacerbated by modern technology. You know, I don't think people all of a sudden became political. I mean, throughout our history, there have been lots of moments and, you know, even generations which were highly political. Certainly my generation in the 60s was. Um, so that that isn't new. But nowadays, suddenly everyone is a journalist, you know, who has an iPhone. And uh, and there you go. And with the social media, all of a sudden your opinion becomes part of a movement. And then everyone lines up. And of course, cable news has done that as well, whether it's uh, Fox or MSNBC. And then I understand it, I guess, because, you know, everyone likes to be around people that agree with them. You know, it's just you don't want every conversation. It's, it's why people got scared of Thanksgiving, because it used to be, at least in the last few years, where Thanksgiving in virtually every family was really difficult because there was always someone in your family that had the opposing point of view. And um, all of a sudden it became a political argument. And, you know, there was one year where they didn't even give me the turkey bone. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I always got nervous around uh, Thanksgiving because of that. But I think now, because of that, we line up in camps. You know, I think there's a, a sorting process going on. Is that, you know, I, I do think there's a difference between the political parties in this way. I think people, and this is, I understand the generalization, but I think people that are Republicans are Republicans first. In other words, it almost doesn't matter who their candidate is. Their loyalty is to to that Republican Party. Now it's being translated into being Trumpians. But the truth is, whoever the Republican candidate was, all those people would be voting Trump. Democrats um, are something else first before they ever become Democrats. In other words, there is a coalition of interest groups. So you're maybe you're African-American, maybe you're labor, maybe you're a part of a group that in the environment is the major issue. So you've got this coalition of varying interests that, from the Democrat point of view, hopefully can coalesce at the time of an election and present a unified front. Uh, Republicans don't have that problem. It's a static kind of, I'm a Republican, I was raised a Republican, and, and I think that's why it's all of a sudden becoming very difficult when, let's say, during the Trump era, uh, when people were saying... Uh, at least when I talk to my Republican friends, Republican acquaintances, anytime I had a discussion, the word but, if you talked about Trump, the word but was always part of the sentence. Yeah, I know what he's like, and yeah, he exaggerates or sometimes doesn't tell the truth or whatever it is, but, but I like the fact that uh, my taxes went down, or I like the fact that uh, he's, uh, you know, anti-immigration or whatever. There was always that but. And with Democrats, there's really not a but. It's that it's a more comfortable party for whatever their group is. But their loyalty is not to, I'll vote for a Democrat no matter what happens. Because I was raised in the, you know, with the 60s, uh, the Democratic Party turned on uh, Lyndon Johnson, a president of our own party, and challenged him with uh, McCarthy and um, Bobby Kennedy, etc. So, you know, that was the first example in my lifetime 
of not necessarily staying loyal to your party because that wasn't the most important thing going for you. I find much more um, uh, loyalty in the Republican Party, and I think that's part of why we have this incredible division right now. Well, that's interesting. I feel like I I I feel like what we see on the left more and more is is allegiance to identity politics, not from the what I refer to as just the liberal left, but the far left has made you know, wokeism a religion that must dictate one's vote. And if one doesn't subscribe to these hardcore identity politics, one must be denounced as a bigot. One must not vote for one's pocketbook issues when there are these other capital O big capital B issues, capital I looming out there. That is true. I don't deny that is the case, but that goes to the point I guess I was trying to make is that there is a loyalty to something else first. And uh, for example, for me in, in, you know, my loyalty this time was, and I had nothing personal against Donald Trump. I just, you know, I met him on a few occasions. I worked for him when I was uh, the host of the Miss Universe pageant back in All 2008 right. in, yeah, in Vietnam. Uh, so I, I, I had nothing personal against uh, Donald Trump. You know, I thought he was a outsized personality or whatever. And But I never, it never dawned on me that he was interested in going into politics. And so that became a... I really was a, oh my gosh, we can't have him for president. And the reason I, for me, my, where, you know, I'm an immigrant, uh, my, you know, my whole family came over from Germany and, you know, I lost my family in the Holocaust. So immigration has always been a key issue. And I didn't think, and this is my, my personal partisanship, I didn't think, I don't think he understands um, what America really is. That America is an idea. We are the only nation in the history of the world to have been created by an idea. Every other country in the world throughout history starts out maybe as a tribe, as a religion, as an ethnic group. They then get a little more land. All of a sudden, they want to have a country and they start a war to protect it. And then they establish a government. That is how every country starts, except America. America was first an idea. And then around that idea, after the uh, revolution, let's have put together a constitution and form the government uh, of, you know, where you govern by the consent of the governed. That is an idea. And the idea was, uh, as articulated in the Declaration of Independence, you know, all men are created equal. And uh, men now, obviously, more than just men. But the concept was we're all human beings and we weren't there yet, obviously not with a, a slave being three fifths of a human being. We weren't there yet. But that was the goal. That was our civic religion. When you said before that it's almost like a religious calling that some of the people on the far left, to, to that extent, on some issues, it is religious. It's a civil religion. And that idea is when we salute the flag, when we tear up in a seventh inning stretch singing God Bless America, that is, it's not to the piece of land. Every country has some beautiful scenery and military heroes and what have you. But what, what America is, at least that was the initial understanding, certainly to, to immigrants, is that, wow, this is a place where it doesn't matter where you're from, 
how, whether you, how you believe in God, you know, what your religion is, what, whatever your ideas are, you're welcome here. The Statue of Liberty is the manifestation of that 100 years later from the revolution. Mm -hmm. But it's that America is something special. And if you attack that idea from day one, it's like, whoa, then what, what are we sending our young men and women to fight and die for? So let me ask you that, because as as you know, um, and you're talking about Trump's policies on immigration, but what what we're seeing now in the wake of this summer of protests and riots is people on the streets literally saying this idea is over. This experiment of America needs to end. There is true hatred being expressed for our country. And, and, you know, you're seeing the, the football players kneel during the national anthem. Some want to call attention to police brutality. Others think America is an awful place. And what scares me is that's spreading. You know, they're, they're not even saying the pledge in school anymore. It's controversial to put an American flag in the background of a live shot. The flag. OK, I understand that. I understand what you're saying. And I, and I agree with what you're saying. But I think I'm adding to that. Though that, though I obviously stand, you know, I stand for the flag. I do the Pledge of Allegiance. I desperately believe in America and all that. I think what you're seeing some people on the extremes that they are so upset because America hasn't, isn't living up, at least in their lives, if they're African American, for example, which it's pretty hard to argue against their notion that what we say America is doesn't really reflect in their everyday lives, that it really, and I don't think we fully understand it. I mean, we, we, we're starting to understand it. We see what the anger is about. But at some point, this has been festering for hundreds of years, certainly since the, um, uh, since the Civil War. And it's like, they're still second class citizens and their lives are, whether you're talking about the, the neighborhoods, the schools, the housing, the health care, the opportunities, the income disparity. I mean, all of this stuff, they're not all lying. It isn't like someone made this up. Well, they're, but they're not all saying it either. Well, I'm sure they're not. No, yeah. because people I, I, talk I about agree. the black community as though it's uniform. And there are a lot of really smart, heterodox voices within the black community saying they don't buy that narrative at all, that they do believe in America and they do believe, well, we're not perfect. You know, we're, we're the only country that's fought a war to end slavery. We're, and within 100 years of doing so, we passed the civil rights laws and that there is opportunity in this country, as proven by people like Barack Obama, right, Oprah Winfrey, Clarence Thomas, to rise to the very top of industry. Yeah, but the real test is going to be, and I'm I'm not arguing with you there. Yes, there. Are, sure, it's not monolithic, uh, but there's a reason. My guess is there's a reason why 95% of African Americans, or is it 92? I don't know what the percent, but you know what I'm talking about. Vast, vast, vast majority of African Americans uh, vote um, on a Democratic ticket, not because they're diehard Democrats. But because they they don't see they don't see that we're we're really concerned about that issue unless there's a disturbance. 
But can I ask you something there? I know you, unlike most people out there, understand the working class of America. And I think that's that's very largely driven by socioeconomic status. And I think, you know, when I was growing up, I was a Democrat. My family were Democrats. I wasn't really partisan. They weren't really political either. But, you know, you had to be one or the other. And my Nana, my Nana, who was born in 1915, used to say, Republicans, they're for rich people. We're Democrats, right? Because we didn't have any money. <laughs> and I, I think there is still, maybe less though these days, um, a knee-jerk instinct to say, if you don't have money, you're a Democrat because the Democrats are for you, given their relationship with labor and so on. But I think it's changing. Not only the working class going for Trump and some of these, uh, you know, in Appalachia, in the, in the Rust Belt in, in 2000, 2016, sure. but he even increased his share of the black vote. It wasn't by huge margins this time around, but he, he sure did. And the Latino vote. And a lot of folks said that came down to socioeconomic issues. They want they trusted him to improve their pocketbook. There's no question about that. There obviously, people that voted for him uh, thought that he would improve their lives more. Yeah, that's true. But I'm just saying the vast majority people that are, let's say this, People who are of a group, just for a second, I'll talk groups, that are in a group that by and large, you know, uh, initially or even now, it's uh, look at the, the women's vote, um, uh, whatever group that they thought weren't getting a fair shake by, or by, the, by the government, which does basically reflect the interests of, at least socioeconomically, people like me. I mean, you know, they're giving me this incredible tax break, which is insane, insane when we have all these real needs right now of, 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 um, of people, and not just because of the pandemic, just in general, real needs of, of people at the lower end of the economic scale or even the middle class that need some help. In other words, they see the government as representing wealthy, powerful interests, which is true. I mean, it does mostly represent that. On both sides, on both that is, I agree with you on that, and I think it's true on yeah. both sides. Yeah, well, yeah, because these politicians want to be reelected, so they rationalize how it starts out. Let's say they originally go into politics for a a nice reason; they want to help people, they want to make the country better. But then once they're in, they kind of enjoy their life at being in Congress or being a senator, and it's it's not a bad way to live, and the prestige and all of that. And then comes up the next election and suddenly they're 40 years old, 50 years old. And if they lose the next election, that really disrupts their life. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, they're and so all of a sudden they rationalize and the rationalization is, well, I'm willing to bend a little bit here because if I don't get reelected, I can't do the good that I originally came in and wanted to do. So that's how the the. Um, intellectual corruption starts. Not, I'm not talking about the obvious blatant corruption when yeah, you're yeah. getting, you know, being paid off. But just in general, they start rationalizing, and it's intellectually dishonest, and and that's why people then get really upset with government. So if we're talking about people on the edges, yeah, if someone's throwing a rock through a window, but let's be honest, the number of people that were actually doing that compared to the eighty something million people who voted for, uh, who voted against Trump, 
And notice I'm saying voted against Trump more than necessarily voted for a Democrat. Um, that most overwhelmingly, most of them went throwing rocks through windows. So just like I shouldn't say if the Republican Party is all white supremacists, neither should we say that, oh, all these riots, because you want riots? Look at the 1960s. We burned down cities. I don't mean a block. I mean, we burned down cities. We burned draft cards. We had, I mean, the, the country was an armed camp. Uh, the Democratic Convention in Chicago. Um, I mean, there was just so much by the assassinations. Um, you know, Martin Luther King, Bobby. Um, and it, just the whole year was was that 1968 was unbelievable. Yeah. So yeah, there is on the extremes, but in the middle, I understand why some of these quote groups, whether it's women, whether it's uh, African-Americans, Hispanics, Muslims, labor, working class people, why these people often find or mostly find a home in the Democratic Party because other than, and I would say other than uh, pro-choice, uh, there is no litmus test to be a Democrat. And that's why the Democratic Party has so much trouble. Once they get elected, they, you know, you know, we're not a, we don't like uh, organized political parties. We're Democrats. Uh, what's his name mm -hmm. said that back when. But I would say that, I mean, just knowing what I know about the other side, I would say they're much more in favor of personal responsibility. They want government to get out of the way, not to make the way. They want less regulation to open up the economy and let her rip, which has which happened under Trump. It happened prior to covid. And so they're what they want is opportunity. And that's one of the reasons why his crackdown on illegal immigration, to go back to your first point, was popular with the working class. They were saying, I don't want people who are here illegally to take my jobs. That's one of the reasons people believe that, that Trump did so well with Latinos down in Texas, because they understood how important legal immigration is to the country and how damaging illegal immigration can be and how important it is to stand up against it for the people who are already here and maybe struggling. Should we? I understand that's what they say. I understand what they say. And in, in some cases, I don't think there's any question for some individual people that is that's true. But for the vast, vast, vast number of people in America, how how many? Honestly, if you're in a room alone with God and you have to tell the truth or your life's over, you know how many really go to sleep every night and saying. My life is horrible because of the immigrant came into this country. I mean, Jerry, you, you got to go spend some time on the southern border and those numbers go way oh, up. Well, I do. I, I do. It's more so there. It is more so there. But it's not it's not overwhelming. I think it's basic because I people up here. Well, I'm in Florida. That's where I live. But anyway, when I'm up north, uh, you know, people there complain about immigration. And there's that never comes up that they took my job. Because the people I'm talking to have a very nice job or whatever kind of a job. They're police officers, they're whatever. They're not losing their job because of that. And they have but the same also, attitude But they're worried about, about the, the security threat. I mean, they're also worried about the security threat. Because they're, what they're arguing, no one's arguing against legal immigration. Well, some people are. Some people are. The end cultures of the world aren't really in favor of that either. But the core Republican Party talks about illegal immigration and how to crack down on it. And even under Obama, you know, he deported more illegal immigrants and unlawful immigrants than 
than President Trump did. And I'm not I'm, I'm not proud of that. But clearly, you know, there's a racial context for many of the people of why they're the against law. immigration. Why should, we be, why should we just open up the border and let a bunch of illegal enter entrants come in? That's not the alternative, though. The alternative that that's setting up a straw. Uh, uh, can't think of the uh, the phrase, <laughs> but that's not yet. <laughs> but that isn't the that isn't the choice. The choice is yes, let's have legal immigration, but let's have let's have a, enough uh, judges on the border or lawyers on the border so that when someone applies to get in, let's make let let them be able to go through the process. Let's not kick out children that have lived there, you know, fifteen years in this country. And, uh, you know, moms, uh, they snuck over the border to get a life for their children. Who knows what their circumstances were? I don't know a single parent that wouldn't do everything in their power, everything, to uh, make sure that their kids got to live. And if they could, uh, you know, get across the border, I understand the human emotion of trying to get there. So if we're, I'm saying protect the borders, but I'm saying also have a process when these people come up and ask uh, for um, be, being able to come into this country, that there's a process there. I would take, for example, I would hire 10,000, if necessary, whatever that was, uh, um, graduates of law school to give uh, one year, and maybe we, you know, wind up um, helping with their tuition of law school. But for one year, to set them up on the border, so that we would have a uh, a court system where just dealing with immigration, and then we'll find out who's legal gets to come in or go through the process. Who's not, we are not going to put in. But well, to throw out, I mean, I'm I'm know, all for uh, taking a hard look at asylum claims. You know, I'm in danger where I am and I need help. That's one thing. But trying to sneak across the border and then and then get the rights that others who came before you from from the border waited in line for and worked for and studied to achieve. That's not OK. And so it, for sure, we could be doing it better. But I think, you know, one of the things that some Democrats, why even Joe Biden wants amnesty for the existing 11, 12 people who are 12 million people who are here undocumented now that's not right. That's not fair to the people who did it by the book. Well, the process now, it, it, admittedly, the process is different in different countries. But in most of these countries, and I certainly know it was true during the time of Nazi Germany, when uh, my parents were trying to get out. I mean, most of my family didn't, but mom and dad finally did. But the people that did get out you know, there was all kinds of stuff going on to get up on the list. Who did you know? Could you pay some money to get up there? And, you know, parents would do whatever they could to to save the life of, of, of themselves and their children. You know, and that is such a human that, you know, putting the politics aside, who doesn't feel for that? No, I understand that. Today, they would be asylum seekers. We know where the virus came from. But do you know where your mask came from? You should. The PPE shortage that we faced as a nation was due to the outsourcing of American manufacturing to China. Founder Lloyd Armbrust started his company to start bringing back manufacturing to the U.S. and to ensure this never happens again. The company produces both the materials and the masks in its Texas factory. How about that? 
If we don't want our country to shut down, we have to mask up. And not all masks are up to the task. Unlike cloth masks, gaiters or bandanas and the non-medical masks, Armbrust USA surgical masks are FDA listed and are independently certified to have ASTM level three filtration exceeding the highest safety standards. Now, what does ASTM level three mean? American Society for Testing and Materials. It goes level one, two, and three. Level three is the toughest, like the best. And this exceeds the highest safety standards. Um, So this is a good mask, better than most. And that means the masks that are used by heart surgeons in the OR and by frontline workers are now available to protect you and your family. These things are triple layered, but they're still breathable and lightweight. That's key for me. They have a secure fit, two-way protection. They have an electrostatic defense shield for filtration, FDA listed, and again, ASTM level three certified, hypoallergenic, and most importantly, made in America. Go to DontShutDownMaskUp.com and enter the coupon code MK at checkout for a 20% discount on your order. Again, follow with me. DontShutDownMaskUp.com. That's a good one. DontShutDownMaskUp.com slash MK. Back to the point I was making at the top, which is I do think you have an understanding of the working class in a way most Americans do not. And I heard it from you a few years back. You were celebrating the 25th year anniversary of your show. You were in a tuxedo. You got a little emotional. It was actually really (laughs) sweet. And we're going to play the clip. Here it is. Well, what I've learned over our quarter century of shows is that deep down, we are all alike. Some of us just dress better or had a better education or better luck in the gene pool of parents. I'll say it again. Deep down, we are all the same. We all want to be happy. We cry when we're hurt. We're angry when we've been mistreated. And to be liked, accepted, and respected, not to mention loved, is the greatest gift of all. Yes, we're all alike. Know this. There's never been a moment in the 25 years of doing this show that I ever thought I was better than the people who appear on our stage. I'm not better, only lucky. So thanks for the 25 years. We've signed on to do a whole bunch more. And as long as I stay healthy, we will. And on that note, take care of yourself and each other. Uh, What I love about that clip is, number one, a theme I've seen in you, which is humility. And number two, um, a willingness to understand we have more in common than we do that separates us. And, And to just sort of look at people for their humanity as opposed to with judgment. There's so much judgment today, isn't there? Yes, there absolutely is. And I think a lot of the judgment, and this really is on both sides, it's it's almost as if, I don't know, politics has become a sport uh, because it's covered as a sport. It's covered as a contest. And everyone's, you know, you're, you're, you're rooting for one team or the other. And the team you line up with it starts to define you, mm-hmm. uh, who you are. And I know when Democrats say, oh, that's a Trumpian, I know they have an absolute image of what that person is. And when uh, 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 Republicans will say, oh, that's a liberal Democrat or, you know, a, a lefty a or a lib, yeah, a lib, they, they immediately have, have that image. So I um, 100% agree with you. Um, there is that. And I think, I think it's kind of inevitable because of our 
culture today, the technology today, where it's it's so easy to to line up with one side or the other. And then yeah. because everyone likes to find people who agree with them, they keep going to those same websites. They keep watching the same cable news. They keep, yeah. you know, it's just, it gets, you know, and all of a sudden you, you become a fanatical supporter of that side. But Mickey and I, my wife and I were, um, it was a week before the election. And by the way, this happens on both sides. So I'm not picking on Republicans here. But we were standing uh, here in Sarasota. There's a, uh, there's a you know, a, a major road. And uh, traditionally, people stand there with their signs, you know, waving the signs. And, and uh, you know, Mickey is the most private person in the world. And is very political, but doesn't, you know, she's not up front like I am. But anyway, we had our, uh, all the sign said was Biden-Harris. And we stand along the road with, you know, a couple of hundred other people that were standing there. This was a Biden group. And these cars would come by giving us the finger <laughs> and making, you know, and we're saying, why? why? It why? wasn't like our, yeah, <laughs> our sign didn't say Trump's an idiot. We hate Trump, you know, whatever. <laughs> right, it was right. just, and it was so depressing. You know, right, finally we said, America. Oh, well, let's just go home. Yeah, I know. It was, I know. You know, and I, of uh, course, and we did see sides. that. We... It's both sides. Yeah. I know. I, I, like you, aspire to see a country in which we lean into our better angels. But I think I agree with you that the, the internet, while it's done so much good, I feel like it's number one harm is the damage it's done to human relationships and intimacy. And, but this is an, this is a related problem where it's made us so tribal. It's made us uh, just committed to confirmation yeah. bias, less open-minded, even though we have more access to more information. Um, let me tell right. you, so instead of watching cable, they should have been watching the Springer show. Uh, as so many people were for 27 years. The show just ended in 18 after, right? Almost 30 years. Um, and I wanted like to ask to you, what do you mean? Yeah. What are you saying? Stop it. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, the, the show had no redeeming social value, and but it was fun. It was, it was fun to do and it was crazy. And, you know, and, and I realized over time that no matter how much people would complain about it, they obviously watched it. Otherwise, they wouldn't know what mm -hmm. they were complaining. It was, you know, it was one of those guilty pleasures or whatever. It was. It yeah, was what what did people it, love uh, about it? What did people love about it? Well, at first, the shock, um, because they'd never seen behavior like that on television. American television up until the 90s, you know, the early 90s. In fact, about the time that our show came along, um, American television was almost exclusively upper middle class white, uh, whether it was the Seinfeld, you know, Seinfeld or uh, Friends or uh, whatever the shows were at the time, they were always well scrubbed upper middle class white people. And if you were African American, uh, you uh, it was either on one of the side channels or you had to be a doctor like uh, Cosby was. Um, but it, it was even the newscasts were all white. And it, then when they started to have one anchor be a black person, um, they had to speak with um, the upper middle class white accent and language. You know, um, it, it, it was just all that. Along came our show. And for the first time on major networks, you saw every day people who didn't speak the Queen's English, who weren't. Upper white middle class who weren't 
well scrubbed. And it wasn't that they had never seen behavior like that, because that is absolutely false. You know, we had myths, you know, when we, you know, we had Hitler and no one had a television set. So it isn't like television created bad behavior. That's absurd. Mm -hmm. But what it did do, we were shocked that where we used to have our sitcoms where husband and wife would sleep in separate beds. Uh, I, I Love Lucy or whatever, uh, or the Donna Reed show, all that. All of a sudden, we saw this language, which was bleeped out, but they knew what the words were. Uh, mm-hmm. This misbehavior, this because everything that was ever on our show is already in the Bible, in Shakespeare, in great literature. So there was nothing new. It was the medium in which it, it was shown. I look at it and it's like, okay, so there were there were all those shows, as you point out, Cosby, Friends, et cetera. And a, then along comes Springer with, you slept with my stripper sister. <laughs> and I was, yeah, like, the, the yeah. Guardian was given, was reviewing oh, wasn't that the show. A great, wasn't that a great, yeah, yeah wasn't that a great I didn't one. see it. I didn't see it, but I love <laughs> no, the title. So the Guardian writes this <laughs> yeah. about the show. In the last 25 years, the Jerry Springer show has delivered more on-air fights, ranting white supremacists, adulterous strippers, and transphobia than anything else on television. It's an undeniable phenomenon, a game changer that turned daytime television into an entirely different, somewhat terrifying place. <laughs> what do you think of that review? Well, well, it's, it's accurate, and it, it, it wasn't intended. Um, you know, how it, all, how it all came about is... Uh, I was anchoring the news for 10 years in Cincinnati for the NBC affiliate. And we were pretty dominant in the ratings, but the company that owned us, uh, multimedia, they also owned talk shows. They owned Phil Donahue, Sally Jesse Raphael, a bunch of others. And um, in fact, I think they also had Rush Limbaugh's uh, television show. He had a television show for for a while. And uh, so they had various talk shows. And one day they took me to lunch and said that Phil Donahue was retiring and um, we're going to start another talk show and you're the host. So I was assigned to it. This wasn't anything I, you know, I hadn't seen, you know, I had a job like a lot of people did and during the day. And so I wasn't, uh, you know, I didn't know much about talk shows at all. They just assigned you were an award winning (laughs) evening news anchor at the time. uh, Yeah, it, it went well, you know, but, um, yeah. yeah, we did. Yeah. And, uh, but anyway, so I enjoyed doing the news, uh, and because particularly in Cincinnati, they initially, when I finished being mayor, uh, NBC offered me the job to anchor, but I had no interest in being a news anchor. I wanted to do political commentary. So the deal we made was that I could do the news every night. Uh, I did the news at five thirty, six, and eleven. But at the end of the eleven o'clock newscast, I would get two minutes to do my own commentary, mm-hmm. and uh, which at that time was real—I mean, was amazing that the network, that the uh, station, let me do that. Because up to then, stations had editorials, but they were always by the general manager, station manager, or whatever. It wasn't by the person who delivered the news. So. Uh, I had to put on a different hat and I really worked hard. I'm not sure I always succeeded at it, but I really worked hard that when I did the news, I did it without raising my eyebrow, without any asides. In other words, because it was Reagan was president when I started it in 82. 
Um, so, you know, there was never any anti-Reagan stuff when I was doing the news. And a lot of times it wasn't political when I did my commentary, but that's when I gave my view and uh, or on what was going on, something about, you know, like the commentaries I do at the end of uh, the crazy show. Um, that's where the final thought came from. And so I was doing the news, but how I got the talk show is because we were doing so well in the ratings, they said, you're going to do the talk show. I said, I didn't want to give up the news. And they said, you can do both. So in the beginning, for the first two years, I would get up in the morning in Cincinnati, fly to Chicago where I do the talk show, fly back in the afternoon to Cincinnati because I did the news at, as I said, 5, 36 and 11. So, but after two years or a year and a half, actually, it got exhausting and, uh, mm. And so I, that's when I said, well, I'll do the show, just the show. But the show was serious in the beginning. You know, um, we had serious people on. It, it wasn't the, the crazy show it became. It's one day, about three years in, we did a show on the Ku Klux Klan and, uh, and a, a fight broke out on stage. And then people in the audience charged. And then it became basically a riot. We had no security because whoever heard of a fight on television? And uh, the next day we did. But I, we honestly thought that's the end of my career. We're, we're done. And I honestly oh, thought, wow. well, that was it. We can't. And, uh, but they kept exactly us on. Exactly the opposite. Wait, can I ask you, so this is the, the, the show started in 91. So this is still the early to mid nineties. I'm just curious at this point, were you married? Were you with Mickey or what, what, like, um, were you going through this, like this shift from news anchor to talk show host with a support in your life? Yes. But here's, here's, here's the lovely thing about it. Um, about 22 years into the show, um, we're now doing the show by the 22nd year, we were doing the show in Stamford, Connecticut. Um, and in the middle of the show, uh, the producer calls me over and says, Oh, Mickey, Mickey called." Well, Mickey never calls me, you know, during a show or something like that, you know, during the day. So I said, Oh my God. So I run to the phone. I say, honey, uh, what's wrong? She says, <laughs> Oh my God. I said, what? She says, she took off her blouse. I said, what are you talking about? She said, I just saw your show. Is this what people are screaming about? <laughs> and I said, what? <laughs> you've been married to me. You know, now we've been married 47 years. But you, you've never even watched. She watched the like the first year out. I had this show. Oh, my God. <laughs> she says, honey, that's disgusting. That's crazy. I said, you say, I honey, know. Honey, you like I, your, you like our house? It, this is how you got it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, in my mind, I was thinking that, but you don't stay married 47 years by saying that. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. Now, some thoughts are better left unsaid. So what, what about it? Cause I, I want to, of course, I forgive me for asking the question everybody asks, but I do want to know, is there one that stands out to you as particularly nutty? Um, well, pure nutty was the guy who married his horse. Um, and, sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I want you to know I came out against it. So it's like I don't have, you know, don't say I don't have values. I family values. Was that real? Was I, there I actually of, a guy who wanted to marry yeah, a horse or was that like a yeah, setup? Yeah. Well, what happened not. is we, um, it was in the newspaper. He lived outside of Branson, Missouri, in a rural area. And um, so uh, 
and people knew that, and they had a little ceremony there. And so, oh God, then the show contacted, I guess. But anyway, oh, I should tell you on this story, which which has some relevance, is I'm never allowed to know the subject of the show. I'm not allowed to know anything about it. All they do is is when I go out there, they hand me a card. And the card, all the card has on it are the names of the guests because I haven't met them. So that's why the start of every segment on the old show is me saying, I introduce the names and then I say, so what's going on? And then they start telling me their story and I am supposed to ask questions that uh, you would ask sitting at home watching and then make some jokes. So basically I was paid to ask questions and then tell, you know, make some comment about it, joke about it. Mm-hmm. So, but I never knew what the subject was. So this particular show, uh, I saw, I, I forget the guy's name. Let's say it was Bob. I'd say, please welcome Bob to the show. Uh, uh, Bob, so what's going on? I and mean, he was about a, I'd say about a 45 year old man. And he's sitting on a chair on stage. And I say, Bob, what's going on? He says, well, I'm having trouble with the neighbors. Well, you know, what's, what's wrong? What's, what's the trouble? They don't seem to like my wife. Well, why wouldn't they like your wife? Does she cause trouble? No, she's quiet. She keeps to herself. Well, I can see this is going nowhere. So I look at the card and I look at the next name. I say, okay, let's bring out your wife. Out comes <laughs> this horse. The crowd goes crazy. Now I, as what I would argue, a reasonably normal person said, oh my God, stop the cameras because I'm assuming his wife fell off the horse. <laughs> so it didn't dawn on me that the horse was the wife. So of course the not. producer is, is waving his arms. No, no, that's the wife. <laughs> so I go, what? And then we take it from there. And it was really weird. Be- was it, it was a good really looking horse? Because every- oh, she was adorable. But a uh, pixel was her name. A <laughs> little, little long in the tooth. That, that's right. Yeah. Boom, boom. Yeah. <laughs> No, I said, why the long face? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so, she, but every time I stood between Bob and Pixel, Pixel with her head would just kind of nudge me out of the way. She wanted to keep Bob in the line of sight. It was just, just crazy. Bizarre. A, a few years later, um, I do the national tour of The Price is Right, the uh, live show at casinos and theaters around the country. And we did uh, some shows in Branson, Missouri. And one contestant that came up, and, you know, I always talk to them first before they play the games. And she says, you know, uh, our town is famous on uh, your show. And, and I told to tell me about that. And he says, well, we have someone here who was on your show. His name was, and I didn't remember the name. But he was the fellow who married his horse. And the crowd goes crazy. And I say, yeah. And she said, yeah, he lives. It's about 30 miles up the road here. And uh, so, yeah, that's that's the most that's the craziest we ever had. Well, I got it. I, I my number one takeaway is my producers are phoning it in on this show. I we got to have a serious heart to heart after this is over. So but the, but the truth is who a who could tear their eyes away when watching that? And B, this is why people would criticize the show, right? I mean, I re- Bernie Goldberg, he, he said you were screwing up America. 
And, you know, that's, of course, what people say about the show. It's just it's the it's the dregs of society and it appeals to yep. our worst instincts. And I know you said you, you wouldn't watch your show, but do you think overall on balance it was a force for good? Probably not. Other than <laughs> if there is good. First of all, the show was put on purely for entertainment and I agreed to host the show and I'm not allowed, you know, under the contract, I'm not allowed to know what the show is about. So I can't then, it was supposed to be dysfunctional behavior Nailed uh, it. or people or people outside the mainstream. That was the concept of the show. And I agreed to, when they signed me up, I agreed I'll host the show. You know, and we've had all kinds of people on the show uh, that are dysfunctional. So when somebody, for example, if I was doing a, show, a basketball show, I'll tell them one of the sports channels and every day I'd have basketball players on. That wouldn't be strange. Well, if you're doing a show about dysfunctional behavior, obviously you're going to have dysfunctional people on. If you're, if you're doing a, if you have a show about, uh, you know, serial killers, that's what you're going to have on every day. So I was never shocked at, oh, gee, how do you have these people on? Well, that's what the show is about. Now, if there is any good to be gleaned from it other than Look, the show was aimed at high school and college age kids. I mean, let's face it, that was mainly the audience, college age kids. Our, the audience, the studio audience, were all college kids. And um, so, yeah, if I were in college, of course I would have watched the show. I'd be laughing, hooting, and doing it, you know, just I was a crazy college kid. But, you know, as a 70, now 77 year old man, I'm not, you know, no, I'm not, I wouldn't watch a show like that. I mean, that has no particular interest. So there's, oh, this is crazy. Yeah. And then I'd move on. What did it teach you about human nature? Um, kind of what I said in that thing you ran is that we really are all alike. Some of us just dress better. I really, okay, but really I, but I married that. a human. I, I don't see anything in common between me and Bob. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but he, but my guess is he wants to be happy. My guess is if he's angry, he'll sometimes even curse. Um, you know, I'm sure, you know, pray God, obviously not, he's not a violent person. So that obviously is beyond the pale. Um, but here's the example I give and I've given in other interviews, I guess, is when, if a professor of English at Harvard comes home one night and sees his wife in bed with the next door neighbor or whoever. He is not going to say, forsooth, my dear, what it is that I have found. He's going to grab the guy, probably start cursing, physically throw him out of the house, maybe throw something he's so angry. In other words, we human beings react at all different, with all different ways, in all different manners. So when people come on our show to talk about something that is going on dysfunctionally in their own life, we're seeing them at that moment. But that very same, not the, let's say not, well, even the guy who married his horse, he could otherwise be an absolutely warm person. You know, he could be polite. He, uh, you know, he, he probably has a job, uh, uh, goes to work. The people in the town obviously knew him. The office um, Christmas party's you know, weird. Never, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you bring your own horse. 
More with Springer in one moment, but first, let's talk about Bloomsy Box. In the spirit of holiday sharing, and we are still in the holidays, the, all those people you forgot about, you can still get to them. I put a lot of effort into finding the right holiday gifts for special people. Well, it's a small, small list of special people. <laughs> I don't really love holiday shopping, but my mom is certainly on that list, and that's why I sent her flowers from Bloomsy Box for the holidays. Do you know these guys? Bloomsy Box, you should. They are spectacular. They're totally beautiful, and they're totally fresh, which is what makes them so special. You see, they're delivered farm fresh straight to your loved one. So they arrive weeks fresher than the stuff you would get at the store. Um, They're simply better blooms. They're spectacular, as is the story behind them. They're sustainably grown people on family farms around the world. You place your order and then your flowers are handpicked and arranged at the farm just for you. It's like sending a personal one-of-a-kind flower gift. They've got incredible prices and huge selections of artisan-designed arrangements, so you don't have to worry about arranging them, obviously, or suggesting that. They know what they're doing. No hidden fees, no endless upsells, and free shipping with your subscription. So whether you are sending a holiday arrangement to your mom or your grandma or your loved one, or you're getting a subscription for someone special to receive flowers every month, only send Bloomsy Box. And I got you a special discount too. Go to bloomsybox.com and enter MK to get 15% off and free shipping. That's promo code MK for 15% off at B-L-O-O-M-S-Y box.com. And now we're going to bring you a feature before we get back to our guest. Uh, that we call Asked and Answered here on The Megan Kelly Show. Steve Krakauer, our EP, is with me, and uh, he's been firing through all the questions that we get. And what are what are you seeing? Yeah, Megan, we've gotten some great questions on our social media accounts that we're, we're keeping an eye on at all times. That's at Megan Kelly Show, and you can ask your questions there as well, uh, or at our email address, questions at devilmaycaremedia.com. This one comes to us from Ashley Jenkins, who has an interesting one. She wants to know if you'll ever run for political office. Hmm. Thank you for that, Ashley. Um, I don't think so. I wouldn't totally rule it out because if I really felt like the country needed me, I, I, I would consider it. But it's not something I really want to do. Um, I just think it's like out of the frying pan into the fi- fire there. You know, it's like I don't really like having an acrimonious life. It's acrimonious enough as it is. And I'm I do it because I feel I must. I just I can't. I tried to keep myself away and I couldn't do it. So maybe that's what will lead me into that fire at some point. But I don't know. What would I run as? I definitely wouldn't be a Democrat. I don't feel aligned with the Republican Party either. And I don't think independents can really win. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'll be like Trump, having been a lifelong one party, just declare myself some other party and tell people that's what I'm doing. Um, anyway, I don't know. I'm, I'm not really political by nature. I just have some strong views on, on various cultural issues. And I like I love the First Amendment. And I there's a lot I believe in, but I'm not like partisan. I don't know if a person like me could get elected. Um, I don't know, just whether I want to do that to my life. So stand by. I'm not ruling it out entirely. If the country really needed me, I'd think about it. But I'd obviously have to leave New York City, which I'm doing anyway, because my politics do not align with the folks uh, in my neighborhood. New York State has has elected some Republicans at the senatorial and gubernatorial level. Um, I don't know. Just doesn't seem like a job that's well respected anymore, right? I'm kind of rambling now, but it doesn't. I used to look at these senators and governors think, oh, wow. Now I'm like, eh, depends on the person, but just the job itself feels a little, eh. So I guess the answer is we'll see, Ashley. We'll see. But thank you for your question. We'll we'll take some more uh, questions at devilmaycaremedia.com. And uh, also we'll take them on all of our online social media, Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Uh, And now back to Springer. 
I always find this. I think most people, not everyone, but most people have some family secret they they wouldn't want to see on television or on the front page of the National Enquirer. And what you find when you actually start talking about said things is you are not alone. Most people have an effed up family in one way, shape or, or form because we're human. So it does exactly. give you a little comfort to see in the same way I watch The Real Housewives, just to remind myself that I'm a good person. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. it sort of gives you that, <laughs> that feeling. And you know, yeah. what I love about you, you own it and you, even though you're a very successful guy, I mean, pretty much everything you touched over your career turned to gold, you are humble. And I, I saw it, I, my producer forwarded this to me before today and our whole team circulated it. I, I, my husband read it over and over. We were talking about it for a couple of days. Uh, it's it's evidenced in the graduation speech you gave at Northwestern Law School back in 2008. It's amazing. Oh, and I gosh, encourage all the listeners that. to yeah. Google it, Google it and read it and maybe put it on your wall. And I'll just I'll just give them a sense. OK, so bear with me. So some of the students complained, of course, because they complain about anybody, but they, they expressed a deep sense of anger, embarrassment and surprise that you would be invited. So you get up there and instead of ignoring it and just trying to go highbrow, you say, and I quote, to the students who invited me, thank you. I'm honored. To the students who object to my presence, well, you've got a point. <laughs> I too would have chosen someone else. In an attempt to soften the pain, let me stipulate to the facts. You are right. I am an imperfect being, and I feel hardly qualified to tell you what to do with your lives. Though I've been lucky enough to enjoy a comfortable measure of success in my various careers, let's be honest. I've been virtually everything you can't respect. A lawyer, a mayor, a major market news anchor, and a talk show host. Pray for me. If I get to heaven, we're all going. I love that. <laughs> Your humor clearly yeah. served you well as well. I mean, you sound like you're, you have a very healthy sense of humor, most of all about yourself. How critical has that been to your well-being? Uh, well, I, I, I just think it's, an, it, it's a comforting way to, to live. I, I don't want to sound preachy, but I guess if you, if you're just really honest with yourself, because you know what you're really like, you know, and you know how much luck was involved in my success. I'm not being modest. It was, I have the only job I ever applied for in life. The only job was mayor because you have to run for that. So that I stood up and said, please vote for me. But every other job was handed to me. I was recruited out of law school to go to a law firm. Um, I, I ran, you know, I, I was city councilman and mayor for 10 years. And then NBC came to me and said, when your term's up, uh, anchor our news. And then the head of 10 years later, the head of the news came, the head of the station came and said, we want you to do uh, a talk show. And then because of the talk show, NBC came and said, we want you to host America's Got Talent. Uh, we want you to do Dancing with the Stars. We want you. I mean, everything is so that's luck. That is luck because I am just like my friends, the friends I grew up with and the friends I had in high school and college. We're still best buddies and we're all alike. I'm not the funniest one among my friends. I'm not the smartest one among my friends. It's like, how does all this happen? So when people say I made it on my own, I say 99% of what we are, we had nothing to do with. There's not a person on earth that was involved in the decision to be born, to whom you'd be born, in what, 
in what era, in what country, to what parents, to what health, to what mind. All of this is a gift. And if, if you just understand that, and then you just say to yourself, I'm never going to judge someone based on what they are. I'll only judge people based on what they do. Then, then the rest is easy. You don't get upset. Uh, you know, it's like, hey, what a ride I've had. And so I don't get upset about these, quote, little things. I mean, they really are little things. My family, they had it tough. I want to get to that. I want to get to that in one minute. But before we get, before we go there, um, let me ask you about and tell me if you don't want to talk about this. But there was an incident in which your luck ran out in the early 70s when you were on city council. And as I understand it, you were caught paying right. for a hooker at a massage parlor. You pulled a Bob Kraft. Um, yes. And that that. I'm sure it was humiliating. How did that affect you at the time? Well, it was, uh, yeah, it, it, it was humiliating, terribly embarrassing. I shouldn't have done it. And, but no one knew that I did it when I uh, held a press conference and announced what I had done. I was just afraid of being blackmailed. And uh, so I said, I've done it. well, I first resigned and then I explained why I did. And, uh, but then the next, election, I decided, well, let's see if people have me back. And I won the election. And then the next election, I was elected mayor. So basically, my, it wasn't, you know, it happened so early in life. And, you know, it's 50 years ago, uh, 48 years ago. So it's like, it, if it happened, it just wasn't that big of a deal. I mean, I was personally embarrassed and and dealt with that. But I wasn't thinking in terms of, oh, what's going to happen in my life? And, uh, you know, it just maybe because what I did was clearly wrong and I shouldn't have done it. Um, it didn't strike me as, oh my God, I've gone out and killed someone or, you know, it just, I never took it as that big a deal, except that I should stand up and apologize for what I've done and be hundred percent honest about it. And, Mm -hmm. And what happens happens. I mean, it would be it would be embarrassed for anybody to be on, on in the paper for that, especially a public figure, a politician. Um, here in New York, sadly, there's a, a culture at some, or at least there used to be, some of these Wall Street firms that that's just like a thing. Uh, you go in, you pay. They call it a rub and tug. You go in there for one of those yeah. on your lunch hour, and it. I like. I always was curious because a lot of the times these are married guys. And I'm like, why, why would you do that when you're married? And it reminded me of the Charlie Sheen quote um, when somebody said, like, why would you be going to hookers? You're Charlie Sheen. You don't have trouble getting women. And he said, I, I don't pay them to sleep with me. I pay them to go away. You know. <laughs> and I wondered now that I have you, if, if you don't mind me asking, why, why would you pay for that? You know, like, why not just go get a girl and hang out and, you know, do it the old fashioned way? The honest answer is I have no idea. I mean, <laughs> there's no rational answer to it. It made no sense. It was wrong. I mean, you know, I just, I mean, that's the honest answer. I can't think I can't, anything I say, I would be making up now. Mm -hmm. You know, you do, I think part of the thing, you know, I grew up a little later than most people. Um, I don't know. It was just a stupid thing is all I can say. There's no, there's no justification for it. There's no rationale, but I can't tell you that it has, you know, been a weight. I mean, obviously how lucky I've been the rest of my life. So. Okay. But you keep saying luck. I, it's also, it's also, 
determination and hard work. I mean, if if most guys caught in that situation as a public figure would probably assume my political future is over. And what kind of a job am I going to get now that that's been out there publicly? You had a huge comeback. You after that is when, right, when you became mayor at the youngest age ever, right? You were 33 at the time in Cincinnati. That was out. That was after that. Well, I think there was some goodwill going in because I, at least politically, was did very well in terms of winning elections. You know, I think people honestly, uh, look, Cincinnati was Republican and I won as a liberal Democrat. I mean, I think people just viewed me as their errant son. I used to say the only reason they voted for me so that so that they could keep an eye on me where I was. Um, it, it, you know, it. Uh, so they it, there was no real anger. You know, yeah. it's, it's oftentimes yeah. the way you handle it, the way you respond, if you you know, who hasn't had someone, um, some kid in their family, let's say, or someone in their family that, you you know, you scold and they did something wrong, but you don't stop loving them or you don't stop. If it's your family, you don't stop loving them. If it's your friend, you don't stop liking your friend. But again, it, it's so long ago that I don't, you know, I'm trying to reconstruct now and I can't even come up with a, you know, why. Well, right. It's been a lot of years. But I, I, I mean, weirdly feel inspired by the fact that you picked yourself up and you got back out there and you made it happen. You, you know, all of the dis- all of the success we've been discussing came post all of that. Um, you know, you you wound up running for governor. That didn't that didn't work out. And that's when you went into news. Um, that crazy time, Chicago right. versus Cincinnati during the same time frame, I think. Well, I don't know if you lived in Chicago or if you were just visiting, but I saw you. I moved to Chicago right after I finished law school. It was 1995. I lived there till 1997. And I was living in a building called the North Pier Apartment Tower, which was 474 North Lakeshore Drive. It was basically right by Navy Pier. And I came downstairs and there was like I can't remember what was going, but it was like snowy outside and it was just a beautiful day, like winter day. And I come, I turn around the corner and it's like picturesque. And there was a man standing there. All the doorman were, men were staring at him. And that man was Springer. And I thought, it's exciting. (laughs) Well, because I, yeah, I had a place, I had a place in um, the Hancock building. Oh yeah. Uh, It was was not far away. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and, oh, right. What? Oh man. I forget. There was someone who, uh, he was on, sadly, he was on the, uh, Saturday night live and, uh, died of a drug overdose. Chris Farley. Chris Farley. Right. He lived in the building. And, uh, the day that they found him, I was, uh, I went to lunch. We were taping shows and then I went to lunch and, uh, Suddenly, the news broke out that um, uh, so, oh, the headline was celebrity found dead in a Hancock building. Mm, and so I, I didn't know anything about it. I'm just I'm walking back. There's a big crowd out there. And then when I get upstairs. My phone back then, we had voicemail, you know, uh, answering machines. It was going crazy. Oh, Jerry, are you call? Call. Are you are you OK? Right. Call. Because they immediately assumed that it was me. They mm-hmm. probably didn't, you know, I mean, people that I knew, knew I lived there. And uh, so that was a frightening. But yeah, I lived in your neighborhood, I guess. 
Yeah. Well, I remember I, so that building I lived in had 61 floors. And I, when I moved in, I was on 19 and it had views of Lake Michigan. And I completely thought I, I had arrived. I, my, my own newspaper headline for myself was young lawyer has Lake view. Boom. You are such a loser. My view was the 91st floor. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> Total loser. hundred percent. And but you know who wasn't a loser? You know who was not a loser? On the 61st floor of my building, guess who had that yeah. entire floor? Uh, he was a big athlete. He was huge Chicago star at the time. Again, this is 95 through 97. Probably the one oh, of the biggest Michael stars. Jordan? Nope. A different sport. Baseball. Oh, Cubs. Uh, Sammy Sosa? Yep. Yes, you got it. Oh, yes, Sammy Sosa. <laughs> And he oh was in the God. elevator one night. I came home after a few too many cocktails and we both get on the uh, elevator and I press 19 and he presses 61. I had some idea of who he was, but I, I wasn't a big sports fan. Still, still I'm not. But yeah, he presses 61. I look at him and I was like, uh, you're high. And he said, do you want to come up and take a look? I didn't go. Uh, maybe I should have gone. Listen, I we've got to talk. You mentioned it a couple of times when we talked about immigration and your family's story. So what happened is uh, my parents got married in 1933. They were German Jews. And uh, then Hitler came in and uh, they ultimately grabbed my grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins. We basically, virtually the whole family was wiped out, except mom and dad. Mom and dad got out of Germany uh, in August of 1939. They managed to get uh, a visa to get them to England. Um, and they got it. When I say August of 39, it was the middle of August, so August 16th, 17th, something like that. Two weeks later, September 1st, 1939, uh, Hitler goes into Poland to start World War II. Well, um, and that is when the gates came down and Jews were no longer permitted, uh, those who hadn't been caught yet, but they weren't permitted to uh, leave Germany. So according to the visa numbers, my mom and dad were the 88th and 89th uh, people, Jews left that were permitted to get out of Germany. In other words, the numbers got cut off 89 people later and uh they got to england where my sister and i were born and then um 10 years late so we were born during the war is it true you were born in the london tube yeah because it wasn't strange at the time because the war was going on and women in the ninth month would often spend a night in um in the subway tubes the you know the tunnels because those were bomb shelters and oh. um, and but my sister was born uh, in October 30th. So a month after my parents got to or six weeks after my parents got to England, um, my sister was born. And then during the war, I was born. And then in 1949, when I was five, uh, my parents bought five tickets on the Queen Mary and came over to America because they had lived through two world wars now. And they thought Europe would never be safe. And so 
they were lucky enough to get a visa to come to America, which was difficult at the time, too. We romanticize it. But the truth is, uh, America had pretty restrictive immigration policies back then in terms of, um, you know, whether it was uh, Jews or from certain countries, et cetera. It was, you know, there was a real isolationist feeling. And it, it, it was difficult for immigrants, you know, certainly during the war and um, even afterwards for some time. But anyway, my parents got and we lived uh, the American dream. In other words, going by the Statue of Liberty. I often tell the story of uh, we were on the Queen Mary, which is the one memory I have, because, you know, for a little boy to be on the Queen Mary, which at the time was. I think the largest ship in the world, or at least the second largest ship in the world. And, you know, it was like, oh my God, it was a city. And it was a five day journey from uh, England to uh, New York Harbor. You go by the Statue of Liberty. And I, my parents woke me up because they wanted Evelyn and me to go out on deck and see the passing of this, you know, as we sailed by the Statue of Liberty. And all I remember, this was January 24th, 1949. All I remember basically was that it was freezing cold. And there were 2,000 people packed together all watching the, the statue. And what I remember being scared is that nobody talked. There was absolute Silence and it's scary. As a little kid, I didn't know what this was. All these people standing on a boat in, in a ship on freezing weather, staring at staring at something, and it was and they were silent. In later years, my mom told me about that journey, and she said I had asked her, "What are we looking at? And, you know, what does that statue mean?" And she said, in the German she spoke at the time, "Ein Tag alles." One day it'll mean everything. So she. My parents really bought the American dream. And, you know, my dad was a vendor. He sold stuffed animals uh, on the uh, beaches of uh, New Jersey and New York and on the boardwalks there. My mom was a clerk in a bank. And, uh, you know, we lived in a rent-controlled apartment in Kew Gardens until 1981 when my parents moved to Washington to be close to my sister and they passed away five years later. But uh, so that to see their kids grow up and have the life I, you know, we were having, you know, to get us to college to, you know, but it, it was interesting. So we politics to us wasn't just a, a hobby. It was real life. And I remember as a kid, uh, and Evelyn does too, that we would, at the dinner table every night, we would have to talk about one thing we saw in the newspaper. And I was a little boy, so all I cared about is what the Yankees were doing or what the, you know, sports. So every night I would talk about a sports thing. But I guess my parents knew that at some point I would start reading other pages in the paper. And, you know, and then all the way through junior high and high school, it, you know, we started talking about other things. And then, of course, came the, the 60s and uh and it was you know everyone was going to vietnam or whatever and so it was impossible and the civil rights movement so it we became pretty political with that but uh so it was no one it wasn't 
I knew my parents said, you're either going to law school or medical school. <laughs> you know, it was the typical mm-hmm. Jewish, um, you know, culture kind of thing. And, you know, and I, I never thought about anything other than I would be going to one of those schools. And since I was more interested in politics, I thought law school would make more sense. I never really wanted to be a lawyer, but um, I thought law school made more sense than uh, medical school for that. And, and then, well, you know the rest of the story. Well, to uh, to end it on the same conciliatory note uh, that we began on, I love that. Looking at the Statue of Liberty, what does she mean? One day, everything. Um, I couldn't agree with that more. I, th- I think that's still the promise of America and a place where anything is possible. Anything is still possible. Uh, Jerry Springer, you're living proof of that. And it's an honor to talk to you. I, you're me- much more three-dimensional than, uh, than I knew. And, uh, I love your story. Really love your story. Oh, well, you, yeah, I am, you know, I, as I told you, I think, you know, I am a fan period. So this is exciting. I, you know, I kept saying, well, next week I'm going to be talking to Megan. Yeah, this week. Yeah, it's tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. So uh-huh. this is kind of exciting for us. Well, send my love to Mickey as well. I will. Aren't you sweet? Thank you very much. Today's episode was brought to you in part by Norton 360 with LifeLock. Protect yourself from cybercrime with the top trusted ally in today's connected world. Go to norton.com slash MK to learn more. Now, listen, if you have not yet subscribed to the show, please do that now, would you? We've been bringing you all new episodes this entire holiday season, and we will continue to do that because we're not phoning it in on you. We want you to have new content. Um, It's nice too. Sometimes when you're on vacation, you could go down the ski slope and you could listen to us a little. We can still be together, uh, learning and growing together. And we're going to do that on our next show with Bridget Fetisi. Now, Bridget is an online personality. She's big on YouTube. She's big on Twitter. That's how I first found her and fell in love with her. She's funny. She's a comedian. Uh, She's a social commentator. And she's been, you may have heard her on Shapiro or Ruben at Joe Rogan. But I, what I love about her is she's very reasonable. She's much more in the middle than she is anyplace else. She's sort of fiercely independent. She'll call out both sides. Um, but I think this is going to be the most personal you've ever heard her get, for sure. There, there were some very emotional moments. And can I tell you, there was a surprise announcement that is going to knock your socks off. I cannot believe that she chose to do it on my show. I'm honored, and uh, I think you're going to be interested. So stay tuned for Bridget coming up next show. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. The Megan Kelly Show is a Devil May Care media production in collaboration with Red Seat Ventures. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.